Ladies and gentlemen, today is a sad day in the world of strength, fitness, and performance. We lose a true legend today, Charles Poliquin. Uh, Charles has had an amazing impact on my career, and I mean so many other people's careers. And um, you know, this this for me is is quite, yeah, it's 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 quite. I don't know. I don't really have the words. I I really wanted to say goodbye to Charles. Um, I, I booked into November's course because I just had a feeling that maybe November would be his last and would kind of be the last time that I, I'd get to say thank you and actually goodbye in person to Charles. And now uh, I, don't, I, don't, um, I don't get that chance. And, um, you know, for, for Charles, wherever you are now, thank you, sir. Thank you so much for raising the standard, being the example, and really putting trainers on the map. and legitimizing this industry and yeah through through all the haters through all the difficulties that you you insisted with and persisted with rather you know you really did rise above and you you made an impact and listening back to this interview i think those of you who know charles will find it tough listening to this interview in, in a good way not in a bad way but you'll really remember the guy for for the legend that he is and um, he talks about in this interview what he wants to be remembered as and Charles, I think, mate, you, you definitely accomplished that. So thank you. This interview was done in 2014. And um, I really hope you enjoy it. I haven't edited it since. It's got the same intro as what I did when I, I edited it. It got taken off iTunes because it's an old interview. Um, but I thought today, wow, you know, uh, we've been trying to get re-release our, our podcasts, you know, that I did back in the day in 2011 to 2016. Some of them are still available, some of them are not, but yeah, wow, this one, you know, given the day, I thought, wow, we've got to re-release this and um, share it with the people. So thank you, Charles. Thank you for everything. You've impacted my life. You've made me better. You've made so many other people better. And for that, you know, we're just all, to those who got to know you and learn from you, we're all very blessed. So thank you. Uh, we love you. And um, may you rest in peace. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Enterprise Fitness, Melbourne's premier personal training studio. Hey, hey, folks, it's Maximus Mark, and welcome to the show that punches you in the face with information, but in a good way. And today's guest is Charles Poliquin, the Muhammad Ali of the strength and conditioning world. Charles has left a legacy on health, fitness, and strength. Having trained a multitude of strength coaches and personal trainers around the globe, he has raised the standards of health, fitness, and strength worldwide. Poliquin is where the leaders of this industry turn to for advice, and with good reason. Having trained countless Olympic medalists and a multitude of, in a multitude of different sports and more world champions than you can poke a stick at, Charles is the real deal. Today's podcast is about how Charles Poliquin became Charles Poliquin, one of the world's most, if not the world's most successful strength coach. With greatness and influence over an industry comes a mixture of support and challenge. And in today's show, I don't want to ask questions about, hey, Charles, what nutritional supplement do you recommend? Or, hey, Charles, what training protocol can you recommend to help my bench press? No, that information is out there. And to do uh, a service for yourself, I'd highly recommend you get yourself down to a, a lecture or a course that Charles is running. You go on his site to find out where that is. Just get yourself down there. No, today's show is for the real fans, the ones that will still be here in, in 10, 20 years. So if that's you, I thank you for tuning in. Today, we find out how Charles became Charles. 
It was Sir Isaac Newton who said, stand, in, stand on the shoulders of greatness, not in their shadows. Or stand, in other ways say it, stand on the shoulders of giants, not in their shadows. Or what does that really mean? Well, to me uh, and a lot of other people, Charles is a giant in this industry. So I hope this interview gives you this interview is is here to inspire you to see where someone like Charles, who has absolutely achieved greatness in the field of health, strength, and conditioning, how, how Charles Poliquin started. And I hope from learning about his story, it inspires you to do your own unique thing uh, in whatever field that may be for you. So I will listen, enjoy the podcast, and I will speak to you guys on the other side of this awesome podcast. Alrighty, welcome Charles, welcome to the show, absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, today obviously we'll be talking more about, you know, everyone always asks you questions about how to train, how to diet, all these kind of things. What I wanted to do today was really reflect, reflect on your career and the amazing career that, it, that it's been so far. So I wanted to start with an easy question. Um, what was it like for you growing up as a kid? Well, I'm a recovering Catholic, so <laughs> I, I grew up... Uh, family of eight kids uh with what it entails i mean it, it's good um we my father was a journalist so he was very well educated spoke nine languages and my mother went back to school when she was 46 became a lawyer she still had eight kids at home so you know i've learned the value of working hard from a very early start um it was good we my father was big into education, you know, didn't shove it down our throats, but you know, he, I can say I, I've learned the value of it from him. And um, we, uh, and of course, having multiple siblings, you learn quite a few skills uh, mm. for life. And then... Um, so you were, the, you were the youngest or? Fifth. Fifth. Yeah, and then we lived in France for two years, which exposed us to, again, different cultures. My father was big into taking Sunday trips, so we drive to Belgium, go to Switzerland. Uh, we stayed, stayed in Spain for two months. So very early on, I got to appreciate other cultures and other languages. Uh, so it, it, I think it's really good for a child to see that more in your neighborhood or your country. Uh, very few people that I meet, I mean, not my students, but traveling overseas, I'm always amazed that some people have never left their town. I mean, I've had so many employees when I used to work in Rodown that only saw the state of Rodown in Massachusetts, and that was it. Mm. <laughs> and they explained a lot of their frame of mind. Yeah. So did you play sports as a child? What led you yeah, to... Uh... I did a lot of martial arts uh, early on. Uh, and then, in, again, in there, you you learn discipline. And you learn hard work, especially the sensei had. He was an Irish guy that was quite tough on us. I mean, if he did today, what he did back then, we probably would have got arrested. But for us in Canada, you know, with the hockey mentality... A lot of things get get accepted there, you know, like hitting the students. For me to get hit by a bamboo stick on a calf or on a wrist, if I was not aligned properly, to me it was normal. I would do that nowadays. I'd be in jail. So the mm. thing is, is that 
we learned we learned very early on um, there's no such thing as ADD. Mm. <laughs> you get hit with a bamboo stick, your memory <laughs> improves pretty dramatically. Yeah, and so you did martial arts. How 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 far did you take that as a child? It's still something you practice today. Youngest ever black belt in karate, right? Um, and then after that, once I became a black belt in karate, I studied jujitsu, became a black belt in that, and I've done six different ones. So as a child, you started. What age did you start uh, martial yeah. arts? Ten. So from there, that really would you say that that was the entry point into health and fitness that basically sparked your interest on how to punch harder, I suppose? was Is that how the story goes? Well, what happened is that the way I got into that is that, you know, again, as a kid, I was very disciplined. So one day they announced a snowstorm on the news. I didn't know to miss. So I got up an hour earlier. I knew the buses wouldn't be running. And I walked to the dojo in the snow, from snow up to my mid-thigh. I showed up. I was the only kid who showed up. So my sensei said, well, if you're willing to wait, I'll work out, and I'll drive you home because there's no buses. Mm. So I said, sure, so what are you going to do? They're going to lift weights. And back then, I realized um, in 1975, lifting weights was for weirdos. But oddly enough, Bruce Lee was into lifting weights, and Bruce Lee was saying to everybody in the martial arts world that lifting weights made you faster, punch harder, blah, blah, blah. And my sensei was big into lifting weights. So I worked out with him. And then I was bit by the iron bug. We had a small weight room, probably the size of my dining room, in the corner of the dojo and lifted there. And then my brother, he always took care of me with the second oldest one, gave me... Oddly enough, some some guy ordered money, a guy couldn't pay him, so he beat him with weights. Mm. So that cheap cement-filled plastic uh, discs, and uh, they didn't weigh the same. So as I made pocket money, I would buy metal weights, you know, a few pounds here and there, and I sort of built a weight room in my house, in, in my mother's basement, and then... Um, by age 17, I was bitten enough that I bought my first Eleko set. And I bought my Eleko set from working as a busboy in a sushi restaurant. So I guess Omega 3s paid for my Eleko weight. But you realize an Eleko set is not exactly cheap. And at 17, to own your own Eleko sets means commitment. Yeah. And then I came across a welder who made homemade equipment. So I started to make homemade equipment. And then training that. And then I got into university very young. I was 17. And I was training in a weight room. And the guy on the national volleyball team said, hey, you're pretty strong. Can you help me out with my programs? And he was my first client. He turns out he was on one of the best volleyball players in the world. I got him strong. And then a friend came the next summer to train with them. And a third friend. And then uh, by the time I was 21, they offered me to um, train a national volleyball team. So that was my first national team contract. It was also the first time that um, anybody in Canada ever paid, got paid to be a strength coach by the federal government. 
and I got a whopping $400 as an honorarium for my whole work for the year. But you got to realize that back then, there was no strength coaches. You know? And the industry has moved a lot. I, I remember when I went to get my NSCA CSCS in 84, the average salary for strength coach in the U.S. at that time was $15,000. So do the math, it's about seven bucks fifty an hour. Mm. If, you, if you work at a college level, that's probably more like four bucks an hour. So nowadays, Division three strength coaches make 75. And some guys that make half a million, plus car, plus this, plus house, plus nutrition for their kids, meal allowance. So probably somewhere around more like $750,000 a year. So the industry has changed a lot, but I've been through it all as I went through the, the years. So as, as a child, um, when you were doing martial arts, did you have a dream of being a martial artist or was the dream always there to develop nutrition training and supplement me methods and then travel the world teaching them? No, actually, when I was a kid, I wanted Tarzan's job. <laughs> I thought he had a pretty cool job. Didn't have to get dressed to go to work, yeah. save, you know, People from the bad guys live in the jungle. It took me a while to realize it wasn't a job. <laughs> <laughs> All kidding aside, then I thought that Captain America was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like any other kid, we had superheroes, and then superheroes were buffed. You know. Mm. So, as a kid, I can't not remember admiring strength, but very much so in the French Canadian culture, because of Louis Cyr, for centuries, men were strong, were admired. So, you know, in France, they're admired for bad breath and smoking. <laughs> in French Canada, they're admired for being. Yeah. So, you know, as a kid, even in grade school, they would tell us folk stories of guys that were very strong or powerful. I mean, there was a guy that was famous for winning all these bar fights. And I remember in grade two, reading a paper, like it was a kind of a magazine for kids. And there was an article about a guy who could kick people in the head really well. <laughs> and he, he was a French Canadian hero. So it's a, lot, it's a lot different from country to country. Yeah. But, so strength has always been praised. And, you know, the... Those guys, for example, from my father's village, their stunt is they would put a horse on their back and climb a, a telephone pole you know, wow. and show a, to show how strong they were. So, I mean, it, it, strength was all over my culture. You know, the Turks are like that, too. I mean, there's quite a few cultures that admire strength. In Finland or Iceland, strength is admired. You know, some countries, they don't give a shit. But, uh, so when you have that in mind, as far as the nutrition... My father used to read Adele Davis, you know, which was one of the first popular nutritionists. And because of a journalist, he went to her press conference, bought her book. And then my father got into like the high protein breakfast. He went on a crusade. So we weren't allowed to leave the house unless we had high protein. And basically for him, his father was a butcher. Right? And my other gra grandfather was a milkman. Yeah. So milk, eggs, meat, you know were a staple as a kid. So 
luckily for me, I didn't grow up on Captain Coco Puff. Uh, yeah. So but but we, what, yeah. was there a moment for you where you basically said, because right, it sounds to me like you had a few different avenues. You could have you know, basically gone into a sport or a discipline like martial arts and developed yourself as an athlete, but you, you went the, path, the other path. You went the path of uh, coach. So was, was there something that influenced that path uh, of going yeah, from... The part when I started to lift weights, you know, uh, I just got... This is what happened. I grew up Catholic, so, you know, Catholic kids, you got to go to church. And I had to go to church on Sundays, and I hated it, to be frank. I thought it was so boring, and I thought it was a bit critical. I mean, I saw some people sitting at church, and I knew what they did outside the church. I wasn't really impressed. And then one day I said... I said, screw that, I'm not going. So beside the church, there was a university, an university library. So it was basically 400 meters from me. So instead of going to church at 10, at 10 I was in the university library. And I went in the magazine section, and I came across a Belgian periodical, scientific periodical called Kinesiology. And the first article I ever wrote was on arthritis and the knee. Search me. Uh, Catholics would tell me oh, it was God giving me a message but <laughs> that was your path I don't know but I, I got really interested so then I said okay is there anything on weight training so I learned how to use the back then I mean, there was no internet we used the Dewey classification index which actually was invented by um, Edgar Hoover the FBI guy so hmm. I went upstairs and I read everything they had in French on weight training bodybuilding weightlifting didn't take long there are maybe eight or nine books because it was not that popular as a topic but interesting enough I, I have those books now i bought them and some of these guys had better stuff than what's coming out on those internet sets now yeah. for example people talk about bands oh, i invented bands well i could show you a book from 1948 where the guy's using bands attached to weights so you know it's kind of ironic when people claim all these things. 1948, wow. Yeah. So I read the, these books, and then uh, guys were talking about eccentric training and pause isometrics. And so, and then I said, well, I got to read more, and there was only stuff in English. So I said, well, I better learn how to speak English. So I had some English at school, so I would read, pull out the dictionary, and of course, at 10.48, I'd get out of there to look like church closed at 10.50, and I'd be home for my second breakfast, uh, then no one ever noticed. So I did that for years. And then one day, my father says, okay, you guys do whatever you want. We don't have to go to church. It had been only three years since I'm gone, but <laughs> I kept that masquerade forever. And then um, we... Um, by then, I spoke English fluently. Then I started to notice that the best stuff was German. I said, okay, I'll, I'll learn German. So I taught myself German. And when I was 21, I took German formally after my undergrad and studied it. And then I learned Russian, which didn't really give me an advantage because it takes too long to be proficient in Russian. So, but what I did find was... German translations of Russian books. So, because, you know, the, the East Germans back then would get a lot of their information from the Russians. And 
that's basically how I educated myself at strength training because at the university, even though I was doing a kinanthropology degree, we were in four years, we had about half an hour on strength training. Right. You know, like yeah. back then it was aerobics, 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 aerobics. If you look weights, you're going to die. You're going to have patellar tendon cancer. I mean, there was. So were you very, very much the, the outcast of your class? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was the weirdo. Yeah. And uh, then there was a weight room, you know, a really small weight room for the university. And only the football players and the closet meatheads would train in there. And once I didn't finish my degree, weight training had started to become popular. So this is like 1982. So I, there was an economic crisis back then. So I got hired by university, but I had like seven jobs, seven part-time jobs. And what I did is I convinced the athletic director to improve the weight room. So I got two weight rooms and I upgraded the equipment. Hmm. It was about 1984. And then... I made the money, made the university money. It was the first time they were actually making money. Even they were charging like thirty-two dollars a semester to train the students, which is obviously not much. But it became you know, very, uh, very rewarding for the university. And yeah. then by then, I would say eighty-four was a turning point in the industry. So that's when strength coaching started to become accepted as a thing. And then more and more guys would do strength programs for national teams. What, what do you think 84, what, what happened in 84 that, that switched the industry? I think in the U.S. was the L.A. Olympics came you know, to the U.S. So there was like, okay, we need to produce, what did the bad communist guys do that we don't do and the Russians lift weights and East Germans lift weights and we don't and we should. So and what happened is that a lot of Canada's uh, track coaches and swimming coaches, diving coaches, gymnastic coaches were actually refugees from the communist bloc. So they were like, hey, where's the weight room? What do you mean a weight room? So then People got into having weight rooms. And so that was a change in the industry, a big change in attitude. So you, you've spoken before about the search uh, for the perfect program. And I think you said once in the 90s, you thought you found the perfect program and you realized you started training everyone using the kind of same system. And then you had you know, a realization that there is no such thing as the perfect program. Um, so when, when was it that you realized that there is no such thing as a perfect program? And um, yeah. No, actually, it was in 82. I, I got to friends copies of every world record holder in powerlifting, this program. So Marley Pasquale helped me out, and he had his friend Mike Lambert who gave him programs. And through a lot of begging, bribing, or whatever else, I got copies from the communist bloc on weightlifting. So I did a meta-analysis of everybody, and I saw some common trends. Where I, I screwed up was actually in 92, after having five medalists at the Olympics, I thought that I discovered the best way to train. And it turned out it was horrendous because there was too much variation in it. It only took me a summer to figure out that I screwed up. It took me four months. 
But then after that, you only, this is what they say, good judgments from experience, experience comes from bad judgment. So I made bad judgments, gave me experience, they came to good judgment. And that's when I realized that there was three types of athletes. Other, I didn't invent that concept. I mean, Bondar Chuck talked about that. Blue mm. Fager talked about that. And basically, you have volume respondents, you've got variation respondents, and you've got intensity response. When we're talking about the strength training world. Mm. So after that, I started to change my philosophy. And then, I mean, I've always been, I've always been big in, into individualization of training. So... And for the, the biggest, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, for the record, how many gold medalists, Olympic gold medalists, have you actually trained? I don't. Lost uh, count. Gold, not that many. Uh, I've had, I don't even remember. Uh, at least in the medalists, at least, it's 17 different sports. It's an average of three, uh, probably between 15 and 60. I, I, I basically didn't even bother counting. The, the ones that I know is at 10, the ones I'm most proud of is world record holders. And that's in 10 different sports. The reason why I'm more proud of that than Olympic medals is that if you run, swim, lift, whatever, the fastest in the world, and no other humans have done it, for me, that's something to be proud of. To win an Olympic gold, yeah, you, it's great, but you were the best guy on that day, but it doesn't mean you're the best guy in the world, right? Yeah. Some guys choke out or get injured or they got a family issue which messed up their prep, whatever. But to set a world record, like in speed skating alone, in world championships, I think it was 94, I had 14 or 17 medals. Mm. So, you know, that was a big year. 94 was a big year for me. I think in 94, I had seven world champions, but six of them were, of them were female. I thought it was easier to coach women. One, there's less competition, but two, they don't have an ego like guys do, so they tend to listen to what you say. Yeah, definitely. Young males tend to say, oh, I'll improve it. So the guy <laughs> who didn't improve what I gave him was the guy that actually won the world championships. So the, the thing was, after that, once I realized that I was more successful with females, I realized, okay, what's missing with the males? So then I figured out how to motivate them better. So every, it's the growth mindset. You, know? uh, you have to, you look at all the successful coaches, they're never happy. I mean, or the athletes, I remember being on the bus, going back to the airport after the Olympics, and every single Olympics I went to, I went to three of them. My athletes would give me a report on how they did and what they wanted next. So this girl had just won a bronze medal. She was, okay, Lily Amherst coming in two years. I need to win the gold. I only won the bronze. This is what you need to work on. But she had just had won the medal a few days before, and she was already organizing her year. Yeah. For the next two years. So uh, that's a common trait I've had. The guy I worked for, he was one of the best mentors, was Yves Nadeau. He had, he's had over 286 medals in World Cups or World Championships or Olympics. And after every Olympic, he would give me a report card, literally, like A, B, C, E, F. You know? 
And he would say, like, I'm not happy with this. You better change that. So was it in the 90s that you really got onto the functional medicine and uh, functional physiology and researching things like this to, to improve? Or when, when did that really come into play for you? Uh, probably 95. I, I was always being to supplements and, and maximizing recovery. But in 95, I started to realize, well, there's more than just protein and carb shakes. You know? mm. So I got into that and then... In 98, I was invited to take a functional medicine course, and I slipped to the crack. It was only offered to medical doctors, but for some reason I got in. And then I met Jeffrey Bland, who started the IFM. And then after that, it was a big revelation. I said, okay, I got to change. I was always used to the concept of working with a team, but once I, I met a few doctors, but also when I worked in Monaco, I met the first probably one of the first functional medicine practitioners in the world. He was a French guy. And I was amazed at how fast he could make the guys recover. And I remember I'd overtrained all the guys. And some of them basically had almost mono from the overtraining. And the doc showed up. And he pulled out 60 cc syringes and made these cocktails. I mean, there's nothing bad in it, but he shot up everybody, and then they all got out of bed like nothing had happened. And we went to the gym, and this Bobsay guy did five RM with his one RM. Hmm. So I said, mm, maybe he's got a point. So at lunch, I asked the doctor, what's in it? He goes, well, it's just a thing called a Myers cocktail, but this guy taking it to the extreme. And then every time he showed up, he had all these kids you know, to make the guys recover. And then I said, you know, the guys have poor concentration because I'll take this and this. There were two benign ingredients. There were products available in France. He goes, alone, they don't do much, but once you combine them, they do great. I was like, really? So I gave it to the athletes. I said, wow, this stuff really works. At that time, my girlfriend was studying to be a cop, but she couldn't remember all the codes, you know, for the different types of crimes going on. I said, hey, try this. And then she was blown away our short-term memory improved and how she could study. So once I got into that, then he showed me things like, for example, vitamin E. I had my antioxidant profile done, and we're talking here in 1993. Okay, this over 21 years ago, he said, you have too much D-alpha tocopherol, you're deficient gamma tocopherol, blah, blah, blah. And you have the wrong fractions of tocopherols because you need to take this vitamin E and you're actually doing yourself iron by taking too much of the wrong antioxidant. Now they're talking about it in functional medicine, but this guy has been saying that since 93. And I remember being in 98 at a conference and uh, Jeffrey Bland said, Asked the audience, can you take too much alpha tocopherol? And I rose my hand and said, yeah, actually, you know, there's a ratio between gamma and blah, blah. And the guy looked at me like, how do you know that? Because it was just newly in the literature. Mm. But that French guy, he had all the data and years before everybody else. So neither, so, needless to say, after that experience, you were hooked and just had to learn more, hey? Yeah, and I said, you know, 
Yeah. You said that uh, once at 21, you consulted for the New York Giants. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. How, how did you find yourself as a 21-year-old consulting for a major pro team? What happened is that I already had results. And then some guy, the strength coach of Giants was Johnny Parker. And Johnny asked around. And my name was, oddly enough, this is before the internet. My name came up a few times. He said, this guy's very young, but he's pretty smart. So he called me, and oddly enough, the next day, the strength coach for the Denver Broncos called me, flew me in for consults, and both teams met in the Super Bowl that year. Hmm. So I had number one and two I consulted for. But by age 21, because of Pierre Roy, I'd learned quite a few things about sets and reps, and I was ahead of the game. I think mathematically, and I give entirely the credit to Pierre, I knew the math, the right math for sets and reps, tempo, wrestle. I was doing tempo, I was maybe 19 years old, right? And then, so that was very, very young. And now it's like maybe 50% of strength coaches do that. So it, I was ahead of the curve probably 20 years before everybody else. So, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that I could speak German. And, you know, I would spend all my spare money. I would go to Finland. I would go see Dr. Comey. Then I would go see uh, Dr. Schmidt-Bleicher in Freiburg University in Germany. So I invested a lot of money, like all my top students do, whether it's you or Nick Mitchell or Kelly Martinovich or Juan Carlos Simon. All the guys who lead the industry, or any industry for that matter, are information junkies. Right? Yeah. But the biggest difference is that they apply. I see a guys that take a lot of seminar, but I can tell by their business that they learn but don't apply. So applied knowledge not applied is a waste of time and money. Absolutely. So I uh, I learned early on that you need so. You know, I read 16 hours a week minimum on uh, training. This week is my week off from work, so I'll probably end up eating thir- reading 32, 40 hours. You know. Wow. Um, what, what would you say? Eh? So I was going to ask, what would you say was your breakthrough moment in your career? The inflection point? Yeah. I was, it was probably 92. After, you know, going to the Olympics, so just the fact that you go to the Olympics is different than sending people to the Olympics. So the, the, the government recognized that having a strength coach there could make a difference. So Bobsley took me over. And then at Canada won seven medals in that winter sport and five of the medals were mine. Right. So after that, my market value, so my name got into the paper quite a bit. And then the national teams who had not hired me yet all offered me positions. So I had a lot of part-time jobs, you know, and I would, so that's why I got to do a lot of national teams. But I think once I switched from summer sports to winter sports, which was 88, I mean, there's, there, there's always a few inflection points, but I would say 92 was the greatest where 
for example, one hockey team hired me not to work in hockey, so they pay me for a year, and basically I was told don't work. And I, I was like, asked the guy, why, why are you paying me not to work? He goes, I don't want you to help anybody out. <laughs> I'm restructuring the team. I don't want you to increase market value of any players. I mean, it's rare that I hear that. Yeah. You, know, you get paid not to work. So, um, and then 95, the internet started to get popular. I remember being at a conference and somebody asked me for my email address. What? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what it was. And uh, it was just starting with AOL.com. Yeah. And then, but now, I mean, we get emails to our phone, you know. So, um, and then, you know, my daughter, she doesn't know that, I have to explain to her that it was not email <laughs> when I was a kid, or cell phones, or, and then we've become, I mean, for example, today I was reading a piece where the guy says time management is dead. And I would say that's true because when I was start, starting up, I would read books on time management and had these ABC systems, and, you know. And now it's like, screw it. It's you. It's basically the power of focus. And if I've learned something in the last two years is that I've worked way too much. So if I knew then what I know now, I would have worked less and probably spent more time educating myself. It, with computers, it, you know, there was a lot of advantages. Also in 92, uh, I went to the Olympics, met, I was coaching a guy, a few skaters, they won medals, and then the long track skaters, hey, can you help us out? So I, so I got a contract with long track speed skating after my success with the short track. And then the guy said, I would send my programs on Word. He goes, you're an idiot. He goes, why don't you use a database? I said, what do you mean? Like, yeah. I barely knew how to turn on a computer. So for me to, to write programs on Microsoft was a lot better than typing, I mean, than handwriting. So he built me a database, which eventually became my strength software. But the point was is that once the database was set, I could write programs in a fraction of the time, so which allowed me to take on more national teams. So in 92, that was another inflection point, technology getting in. I mean, there was quite a few things that were synergistic. I had success, I had better equipment. All those then, things. But I worked from 86 to 98 in the summers. It was common for me to work 20 hours a day. Wow. So, that's cool. I always say, hey, those guys look to you, you know, look at all these predators. Well, you know, one thing anybody who's successful will tell you is high correlation between how hard you work and how successful you are. Absolutely. So, so you know, these things like, oh, I got to do a, a uh, 37 hour week. I mean, you still, I think you still have to do 70 hours. But the thing is, is that you have to learn to focus on the one thing. So that book, uh, The One Thing by Gary Keller, I think it's probably the most important book one should read. I wish I, Gary had written that when I was 12 years old. You know? yeah. And then I, by reading The One Thing two years ago, I've actually been able to work less and less and then enjoy more free time. 
So now my daughter's old enough for us to spend a lot of quality time together. And we enjoy the same things. She loves martial arts. She loves to shoot. She loves to learn. She loves. So, you know, for example, we're going a month to Sweden just to be Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So, and then you know, we make it a cultural experience between workouts. We go see museums and uh, stuff like that. Excuse me. So, so l um, let me ask a principle of life uh, the closer you get to your goal the less motivated you can often become to achieve it so for example if you want to be a millionaire and you make let's say nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars um you can start to lose motivation because you're getting very close to your goal uh, now i use that as an analogy because um, you've already undeniably left and, and you've, you've built a legacy and now you undeniably left a legacy on the industry so I suppose my question is what is keeping you going what what makes you after all these years why are you still pushing the boundaries of uh, what is possible i mean you've run so many seminars you've written so many books your blog all those kind of things but your schedule that you keep now it's it's still as an in, it sounds still as intense as it was many years ago well here's the deal if you live your passion you don't really work so good know, point ask me. I, so, everything i do i actually enjoy and i if one thing i've learned is to delegate more and then uh, I would say one of the biggest mistakes I've made was not to delegate right and then because I wanted things to be done right which is not very smart I mean there's a lot of guys who could do some of the menial stuff so once I start to delegate like for example giving a guy a contract to make me a software that helped out a lot and then you know, the, so, you know, I, I can't see myself retiring. To me, that's not even a concept that goes into my brain. Mm. You know, I mean, I can see myself working less and doing even more stuff that I enjoy to do. But, so, I suppose, go ahead. I was going to say, so in your eyes, in your career, what do you feel is not, is, is hasn't been done yet? So what's what's left not done in your eyes? Um, this weekend I, I gave a private seminar to Utah State University on strength training for football. So I don't I only had the coaching staff and they brought six or seven of their best players. They asked me to evaluate them and tell them what to do. It was a great weekend, but I was like, I'm amazed that some stuff should be like general knowledge and it's not yet. Mm. So that keeps me motivated. Um, I really like working with a guy that, the coach who brought me in, his name is David Schultz, but the guy is like, I can see a lot of me in him at his age. One thing I've never done is taking a job in a pros full time. I would do one of those jobs that like in soccer just to prove the soccer are retarded the sport <laughs> is. <laughs> and how much you could improve. I mean if I see a sport with a lot of potential, it's soccer. But the one thing that's been shown is hitting the ball with your head so often 
creates ADD and loss in IQ. Huh? So maybe these soccer players who become soccer coaches and soccer general managers are dumb from playing soccer. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not their fault. But. Yeah, I tell you what, it'd be, it'd be fun to watch if you tra- if you coached a team. Um, you know, big big soccer players playing. You know, midget soccer players basically. Yeah, yeah not just trying. I mean, I mean not, you know, the thing is, is that I've been to pro soccer games, and the speed is so slow. For what it could be, watching paint dry is more exciting. <laughs> or watching emeralds recess. I mean, it's a, it's a waste. So, I mean, if you, the best thing you could ever do for soccer is take those guys and take them to an NFL locker room and show them how deficient they are. I yeah. Mean, I remember being, I've been in about five of the top pro soccer clubs in the world. And you look at the guys in the locker room, and if you told me you're at a shoe salesman convention, I would believe you. <laughs> I mean, there's no indication whatsoever that these guys are athletes. Yeah. <laughs> you go to a hockey locker room or a rugby locker room or a NFL locker room, you'll see some studs. Yeah. Um, but in soccer, so just to prove a point, I'd like to take a, a team for three years. Uh, obviously, with what I just said, I'm not going to make friends and influence people, but I would say, I would say that's a sport that could do a lot better. Yeah. I, um, I know we're short on time, so I just want to get in a couple of quick questions. Um, what was the biggest challenge you faced uh, along the way in, in your career? Um, the biggest challenge I would say is, is all the myths, like you can't full squat, it's going to injure your knees, uh, you're going to get big, therefore you'll get slow. I was able to reverse those myths. In hockey, for example, starting hockey, I had to go with that, but after four months, no one ever asked those questions ever again. Mm. Because guys that I was training showed up bigger, but they were faster meaner, more feared, and they were winning. And every guy that I trained was doubling to tripling their salary. So guys would say, hey, I guess gaining nine kilos helps with your career. So then the guys could put two and two together. So they wouldn't even bother asking the question. And when I stopped, what was interesting, it was one of my biggest selling features from other athletes was like, hey, go train with them. You don't have to do cardio. Yes, I want to try. And didn't really cardio that guy, and guys were like, "Would verify the question? Is it true you don't do cardio?" I said, "That's right." They go, "Oh, cool, man!" Like, well, before they would worry about it, and once I built a reputation, no one bothered that. And then the first year, oh, full squats are bad. My athletic trainer told me that. Shut up, just do what you're told. And then after that, guys would come in. They wouldn't even bother to ask you the question or even dare to ask it. Yeah. And then, you know, when I said, okay, you got to cut carbs, that was another one. I mean, all the standard myths around, I had to disprove them. But after a while, once you have a reputation, then those myths don't even get brought up. Results speak louder than words. Oh, results speak louder than theories. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah. And what, <laughs> what would you want to be remembered for by the industry? 
a good question. I think one thing that's been well demonstrated is that no one has had the same amount of success in, in a short amount of time. No, no one has had what? Sorry, the same amount of success with Olympians as I did. Yeah, that's cool. Will someone ever beat me at that? Well, so far, no one has even come close. The guys who come the closest was a Norwegian man, which I respected a lot. Unfortunately, the reason why I say respect is because he passed away. I would still respect him. Uh, him and I had very similar uh, traits and personality. And we didn't see each other as competitors. We used to share actually quite a bit of equipment. It's probably uh, not equipment, sorry, information. So we didn't perceive each other as a threat or competition. So he, for example, taught me a lot on eccentric training. I always did eccentric training, but with them, he was better at adjusting rolling parameters. He showed me techniques how to do eccentric training that I'd never seen. And he was a very good man. And we actually used to compete against each other in the same sport. But we were more interested in improving performance than competing against each other. So, you know, and there's a lot of very good guys. I've met Lee Simmons quite a few times. And he's the same type of guy. And he just cares about lifting more weight. So mm. he will share it with you. And, you know, so the, if you look at the guys at the top of the game, they actually have zero secrets when you go with them. And what you'll find is that I'll show you what they do, and they will also ask you what you do. You know? um, while you will find that the losers will show you what they do and not ask you what you do. Mm. You know, guys with no, no results, and, and they assume that there's nothing better than them. Absolutely. For example, the I'm going to Eastern Europe to visit a guy is from Romania and he has the most success in getting his guys to squat a lot of weight. Success leaves clues. Everybody that goes to that club gets very strong legs. I don't know how he does it. So I don't have the pretension that I know it all. It's like if I could spend let's say an afternoon with Mark Houston, I feel like Forrest Gump because I don't know much about cardiovascular disease. If I spend the afternoon with Bishan Purat I realize I need to learn about insulin resistance. But it's been, you know, with David Perlmutter, I need to educate myself on the brain. So I think a secret to success is, is you know, what Carol Zweck calls the growth mindset. So as far as legacy, you know, as an epitaph, I guess I'd like to be remembered as the man that brought the the strength training world forward. Uh, but, you know, I've had so many teachers that, you know, on my epitaph because I also credit those teachers. So yeah, it's yeah. like, um, what I'm really proud though of is how well my students do. Mm. Um, because the strength coaching profession, like I said, in 1984, guys made 750 an hour mm. if they were lucky. So now it's a recognized job and people get paid very well. And a lot of people forget that uh, or they didn't even know they didn't pay well. So uh, in 1994, the highest paid pro strength coach made 150 grand. Now 
number 10 in the US at the college level probably makes 350 grand. So the industry has changed quite a bit and now people value how well strength training can do for you. Yeah. Well, I know all good things must come to an end. I know we're running short on time. So before we say goodbye, um, what's on the cards next for you? Well, the bioprint is the new system that gives up for body composition. It's doing extremely well, and there's more and more demands. Every class has sold out. So I'm refining the protocols uh, and then trying to refine some of the algorithms so we can pick up more stuff that's on the cards. Um, I'm looking at doing more work that's in, in the plan for the fall. I'll be working with the top functional medicine doctors uh, in the US to do lectures. So we're looking at doing lectures with Dr. Porat and Dr. Houston on the treatment and the prevention of uh, cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome. Mm. And they want to put a large emphasis on the effects of strength training for that. So I'll be teaching the exercise part, and these guys will teach the nutrition, supplementation, and meds part. So it's, for me, it's a big honor to teach with the top two functional medicine practitioners in the world. So that's what's on the cards. Awesome. And of course, there's a tour with Dimitri Klokov mm. in Australia and Canada. I mean, Klokov is a beast, and it's an honor for me to be be able to share the teaching platform with them. Yeah, I've, I've signed up to that, so I shall see you guys in Melbourne. All right, mate. Yeah. And Thanks for the podcast. Uh, best pe- place for people to learn from you is at Strength Sensei Facebook and the blog? Strength Sensei Facebook, which will lead to my strengthsensei.com uh, website. Uh, cool. Thank you so much. On behalf of the uh, fitness industry, I'd like to thank you for the contribution that you've made to strength coaches and personal trainers uh, all around the world. So uh, thank you, Charles. It's been an absolute pleasure learning from you over these years and also for taking time out of your busy schedule to do the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you, Mark, and thank you for the audience for listening. So there it is, guys, the Charles Poliquin podcast. Now, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while and uh, let me just back up for one sec just in case you're new to the podcast with me always like to give a summary after the shows so you know just uh, sit in and listen up because uh, I've always got something interesting to say but nonetheless this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while uh, since having the podcasting show and I've definitely been fortunate to interview pretty much uh, you know all of the the people that have really made an impact uh, on the way I go about uh, training, the way I go about doing nutrition, the way I go about doing supplementation and, and consulting. So Charles was really, for me, uh, one of the people that I, I had to interview and obviously now our schedule's aligned, although I should say the planet's aligned to make this happen. And uh, finally, I, I got the chance to, to interview him. And I didn't want to do the standard show, if you, if you guys could tell. I didn't want to do the, hey, Charles, what supplement should I take? Uh, I didn't want to do that show because I, I believe that you know you can get that information from doing a bioprint course with Charles or doing any really course with Charles. You know, he's not like he's not going to tell you. You pay for the money, you do his course, he'll, he'll give you the answer, right? So I, I wanted to do a show celebrating 
the career that that is Charles Pollock or you know because it it has been an amazing career if you really look at it and whether you're a, a massive advocate of Charles Pollock's philosophies like I am or someone who's kind of on the fence or someone who even is is maybe a little bit negative towards it it's undeniable the influence that uh, Charles has had on the industry absolutely undeniable it's absolutely amazing uh, what he's accomplished so that that is something that should be celebrated and as an example for people starting in this industry or even people who've been in the industry like myself for quite a while what is possible uh, and to have that influence over over the industry and over the way um, things go so uh, I really wanted to take this time out just to thank Charles Poliquin for all that he's done uh, not only for myself, but on behalf of all the strength coaches and trainers around the world, you know, you've, you've really made a difference in my life uh, from my training, nutrition to supplementation to my business life, so personally and professionally. Thank you, Charles. Thank you on behalf of the fitness industry. You're an absolute gem, and obviously, you know, you probably leave a legacy uh, for many years to come, and it's been an absolute pleasure learning from you all, uh, over these years and having you on my podcasting show, so thank you. Um, and for the guys who are new to this podcast, um, I'm Maximus Mark, uh, Mark Atobri, Maximus Mark Atobri, and I've got a blog, which is www.maximusmark.com. Uh, it's also streams on iTunes, and we've also got the Enterprise Fitness blog, uh, which is hosted at enterprisefitness.com.au, so you can check that out as well. Uh, I run, obviously, a personal training studio called Enterprise Fitness in Melbourne. We run internships over there, and you know we run two different internships. We do a how to train the female and, uh, and basically a general internship for personal trainers wanting to expand their knowledge, and, and both the courses are very different. So you can check those out at our websites. Additionally, I've interviewed, as I said before, a lot of different guests from Johnny Bad and Dr. John Demartini, Andre Benoit, who was actually Charles's first assistant, Derek Woodsky, Scott Abel, uh, Bruce Jones, Leah Keith, Dr. Art Devaney. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And now it looks like the who's who list in health, fitness, and nutrition. So get yourself over, check it out. Um, it has absolutely dynamite information on there. It's all content rich. I know you guys will love it. Uh, but yeah, just if you would leave a review on iTunes to uh, help our ranking, that'd be much appreciated. And if you like the interviews that much, also you can share them on Facebook. So until I speak to you on the ne- next podcast uh, or blog post, I want you guys to supplement, smart, train hard, and eat well. So there it is, guys, the Charles Poliquin podcast. So if you're still listening to this, uh, we're back. Market Tobri. Yeah, I mean that's that that, it, that podcast now is um, it's, it's difficult to listen to. You know, I didn't want to didn't want to edit the outro or the intro. I wanted to leave it as is of when I released it. But um, yeah, I suppose today has left me speechless, folks. Shows you how short life is, and you got to live it to the absolute fullest. And um, want to learn you want to step up if you want to do the things you want to do in life if you want to be great you, you got to take charge charge so um the enterprise will be running an event in tribute of charles stay tuned to our blog for details about that and um, yeah i don't really have much else to say uh so i'm gonna go peace out my friends and train hard supplement smart and eat well <laughs>